This is PodBridge. Connecting the U.S., the Middle East, and the world. Welcome, and thank you for joining the latest episode of PodBridge. I'm Yusuf Arateba, the UAE Ambassador to the United States, and your host for today. Each week, our goal is to explore issues of common interest to the United States, the Middle East, and the world. Last week, the UAE, Israel, and the United States signed a historic agreement at the White House. The agreement enables the UAE to develop commercial, diplomatic, and security ties with Israel and opens the door to future partnerships and other shared areas of interest. The announcement came after two months of intense negotiations. Shortly thereafter, Bahrain also announced their intention to normalize with Israel, and both agreements were signed just last week on the South Lawn. Here to discuss the agreement with me today are three of America's most distinguished Middle East policy and diplomacy experts, and all of them are longtime friends. Martin Indyk, Dennis Ross, and Dan Shapiro. Martin is a distinguished fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations and former U.S. Special Envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian Negotiations and former U.S. Ambassador to Israel twice. Ambassador Ross is counselor and the William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and has served as the point man on the Middle East peace process in both the George H.W. Bush and the Clinton administrations. Ambassador Shapiro is the Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Tel Aviv University's Institute of National Security Studies and served as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2016 and is joining us from Israel. Gentlemen, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Great to be with you. So I'm going to start with one very simple question. I know Martin was there on the ground watching the ceremony and because my wife always accuses me of being unable to express my feelings, my first question to Martin is, how did you feel while you were there last week? Well, I uh, felt uh, a certain uh, sense of excitement. Uh, I think it's a uh, truly a historic moment. That's why I wanted to be there, notwithstanding the, the COVID risks. Uh, and... Uh, you know, it's it's a rare thing that that uh, the UAE and and Bahrain uh, should recognise and fully normalise relations with Israel. It's been seventy more than seventy years since Israel was created, and it's not a natural thing in in the state of uh, relations between states across the world that uh, a state in good standing in the United Nations is denied recognition by its neighbours. We all know there's a historic reason for that. It's called the Arab-Israeli conflict. But I think that, that given the length of time, uh, it's a really important breakthrough. And I have to say, and uh, don't say this just because I'm talking to you, Yusuf, but I do think that um, this would not have happened at this time if uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed had not had the courage to break the glass ceiling that existed uh, that prevented Arab states from uh, normalising their relations with Israel um, because of uh, the commitment not to do so until there was a, a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, he broke the mould like Anwar Sadat broke the mould uh, in travelling to Jerusalem and, and he deserves full credit for that, uh, and I have to say, on sitting on the White House lawn, I don't think he got enough credit. Um, 
for that. Uh, so that was one feeling. Another feeling was I couldn't help comparing it with uh, the events that took place. Uh, and Dennis and I in particular were, were involved with the Clinton administration. First, uh, the handshake between Yitzhak Rabin and, and Yasser Arafat, and then the handshake uh, between uh, King Hussein of Jordan and, and uh, uh, Prime Minister Rabin, uh, which was 26 long years ago. And, and I felt, again, the same kind of sense of, of excitement. Um, Netanyahu, in his speech, called it feeling the pulse of history. Uh, I think that uh, Rabin, Dennis will correct me, talked about the, the wings of history were fluttering or something like that. Uh, and so that you had a sense of being there when history was, was being made uh, and the hope that this could open the way to real lasting peace, not just between Israel and the Arabs, but between Israel and the Palestinians, was very much a sense that I felt at that moment. Thank you, Martin. Dennis, same question to you. I know you weren't there, but um, I talked to you before the deal was made and the announcement was made, and we walked through kind of the consequences and how it plays out. What did it feel like for you on, on the 15th, watching a country that, if I had asked you this question five years ago, you think this would have been possible? My guess is your answer would have been no. Yeah, Yusuf, first of all, I think you should tell your wife that from your friends, we think you can express your emotions, so <laughs> don't worry about that. You tell her. <laughs> uh, look, I, I too had a sense of, of history here. Uh, you know, my, my feeling is that a fundamental psychological threshold was crossed with this agreement. A message was sent to the region that the region is not going to stay frozen. A message was sent to the Palestinians that countries in the region will pursue their national interests, not at the same time forgetting the Palestinians, but not allowing the Palestinians to determine whether others can deal with what are real national needs and therefore their real national interests. So I felt a, a historic threshold was being crossed, uh, and I felt it was one that in the end could serve the Palestinians as well. I knew how they would react to it, but I also felt one of the things that Sheikh Mohammed did, that you did, was to create a linkage. Because on the one hand, you made it clear you were prepared to cross this threshold. On the other, you linked it to no annexation by the Israelis. So there's an unmistakable relationship between a country taking a step towards Israel, but also requiring something done by the Israelis to the Palestinians. In this case, not taking a step. Not just a moment, I felt it was also creating a kind of new opening. And, and that with smart diplomacy, we could take advantage of that. Uh, I, I, more than anything else, is just a moment of hope. Uh, Dan, both Martin and Dennis were in Washington. You're the only one from the four of us that was sitting in Israel when all this took place. How did it look? How did it feel from where you're sitting? Well, I had the uh, opportunity, as you said, to kind of watch it uh, through the eyes of, uh, of many of the Israeli friends uh, that I, I talked to, uh, and there was uh, great excitement about it. Uh, there are a lot of unrelated problems and uh, controversies in Israel right now because of uh, the outbreak of COVID and a coming lockdown and because of other domestic political uh, challenges, but uh, 
in spite of that, uh, this was uh, greeted by most Israelis, nearly across the spectrum, uh, as uh, a very, very welcome uh, but and long overdue step uh, about which there's great excitement. Uh, it speaks, I think, to uh, Israelis' uh, desire to be accepted and uh, welcomed as a, a member in good standing in the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, more than that, seeing uh, the UAE and uh, Bahrain as, uh, in many ways, natural partners. Uh, your country and Israel have identified, and it's no uh, secret, of course, uh, common threats uh, that you uh, work together, uh, even before you had official relations, uh, to counter from Iran, from uh, extremist organizations in the region. Uh, and so that was an un well understood. But there's even more possibility uh, because of the kind of peace that is being described and envisioned, uh, which looks like it will have a different character uh, than the peace agreements and peace treaties and, and relationships with Egypt and Jordan. This one looks like it has possibilities for people-to-people uh, -people relations, cultural exchange, trade, tourism, technological partnerships, investment, uh, in which Israelis and Emiratis and hopefully Bahrainis as well uh, will really be able to, uh, as others have said, advance their interests, but also even make a broader contribution to the region and the world. So uh, there was obviously a great excitement. Of course, Could down the road. Sorry. Well, just one more sentence, Martin. Uh, down the road, of course, uh, there was a, a feeling of dismay by many Palestinians uh, who have uh, had, had felt abandoned and said so, uh, and felt that the Arab Peace Initiative sequence of first two states and then normalization was was being was being uh, uh, was not being respected, um, but I share uh, what Dennis said that I believe there's actually an opportunity here, an opportunity uh, which was already in some ways uh, uh, realized by the way the normalization agreement prevented annexation would have been absolutely devastating blow to a two-state solution from taking place, and in fact that Arab states who are in direct contact with the Israeli people and the Israeli leadership may in fact be able to be more influential and more helpful uh, as partners in generating momentum uh, that helps Palestinians and Israelis get back on the road mm -hmm. to two states as hard as that is than Arab states who have been boycotting Israel all these years. Yeah, I find it a little ironic that the Palestinians who feel betrayed by this move don't talk about how they would have felt if this move didn't happen and annexation would have occurred instead. No one talks about that part. Um, Martin, you can I just add one, one thing, Yusuf, uh, yes. about the ceremony that I was thinking about at the time uh, that I don't think has been remarked upon. Sheikh uh, Abdullah bin Zayed, who represented the UAE in, in the signing, uh, gave a speech which uh, also reminded me of Shimon Peres, believe it or not. Shimon Peres was the first... Uh, to coin the phrase a new Middle East, which was quite used by many of the speakers yesterday. And it was uh, Sheikh Abdullah who kind of painted a vision of a new Middle East, uh, looking forward, looking uh, to the youth, looking to going to Mars. It was quite Perez-like. At the time that Perez talked about the new Middle East, 27 years ago, it seemed really far-fetched and indeed, over those 27 years, it didn't see, it looked like the old Middle East for most of the time. But I do think, and Dan, Dan referred to this, is that, that it feels different this time. 
it feels like um, the barriers to engagement on a common endeavour to build a, you know, uh, fulfil a positive vision uh, for the Middle East, it, that it's, it feels like its time has come this time and that, that an Arab leader could, could give voice to that vision, uh, not just an Israeli one, is I think an, an indication uh, of the sign of those times. Um, I think there are some common common themes between the two countries, and I, that's why I think all four of us would agree that the peace agreement between UAE and Israel are going to be fundamentally different than the agreements between Jordan and Egypt. Jordan and Egypt, you are coming on the back end of wars, hostilities, tensions. Uh, peace deals were made to either get land back or to make or to create a peace after a war. With the UAE, that's not an issue. There's very little baggage or bad history. You're going to be linking two countries that are very forward-looking. You're going to be linking two countries that are very dynamic, two strong economies, two countries who spend most of their time looking forward, not backward. So I believe that this is going to be a warm peace, as both Dr. Anwar and Sheikh Abdullah have said. I think the exchange between young people, students, uh, tourists, We've already, in the span of one month, have signed two MOUs, and I think that's just the beginning. We've signed an MOU on COVID and on AI, and I'm sure there's going to be more on food security, desalination, agriculture, technology, space. Um, we've already even started e-gaming tournaments between Emiratis and Israelis. That's already taking place. So I have no doubt that this is going to be mutually beneficial. I can tell you every Israeli family I know is planning their post-COVID vacation in Dubai uh, and flight onward uh, to other destinations, <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of excitement about it. And I don't know if you saw, but early this morning, Emirates Airlines signed an agreement to provide kosher catering on Emirates for all Emirates flights. I mean, if I asked you, Dan, when you were back in the Obama White House and we were you know, having conversations about what's taking place in Egypt, if things like this would happen, I, I, if you ask me, I would say the answer is no. But here we are, September of 2020, <laughs> talking about kosher catering on an Emirati airline. Yeah, you did. And uh, look, I mean, that was the framework within which we operated. There's some people who have been critical of previous administrations this week saying, well, why didn't others think of this? Why didn't others try this? Um, that During those periods, uh, Arab states had uh, made a commitment under the Arab Peace Initiative. That was the framework. It was never uh, lost as a U.S. objective. In fact, every administration has uh, pursued the strategic objective of normalization and inclusion and recognition of Israel by Arab states unconditionally, uh, while also trying to work with those Arab partners as uh, uh, or their states as partners uh, to advance uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace in two states. But in that period. Uh, as you alluded to. It wasn't uh, something that was really envisioned. There were all kinds of reasons for that. Uh, domestic reasons, uh, trying to give space for those negotiations, which unfortunately, obviously, have not succeeded between Israelis and Palestinians to advance. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there's been the slow, gradual uh, warming and, and, and recognition of common interests, uh, and then the willingness over time to expose uh, the conversations out in the open. Uh, it was 2015 when the UAE uh, agreed to allow an Israeli delegation uh, to uh, come and uh, operate openly 
uh, to the International Renewable Energy Agency. And so that was a, a way station on this journey. Uh, but you're right, these are, these are very extraordinary times. Obviously, the current administration uh, deserves its share of credit for helping bring that forward. I think the, the, the regional parties are the ones who really uh, have made it happen. Um, uh, and it is uh, not what uh, would have been, I think, uh, imaginable or no, probably even possible uh, when uh, we were serving in government several years ago. You touch on the air peace initiative. I'm, I, Dennis, I want to go to you. You wrote a piece recently about what this does in terms of allowing or enabling movement on the Palestinian track. Talk us through your piece and kind of what you meant by it. Yeah. Look, I think just one prefatory comment uh, based on what Dan was saying, the landscape of the region was changing. Uh, there were those who were talking about an outside-in strategy, which assumed somehow the Arabs could take the place of the Palestinians. That was never the issue. They couldn't take the place of the Palestinians. But what they could do, and this is really what I was writing about, they create a relationship partly with the Israeli public, which is different, obviously, than was the case before in, the, in a way that reassures the Israeli public, but they can do something else. They can do, they can take a page from what the UAE did. By creating this linkage, it puts Arab states in a position where they can ask the Israelis to take certain steps towards the Palestinians as they take steps towards the Israelis. That can be orchestrated by the United States. And what I was trying to, to lay out was there's a menu of choices that are available. The lower you start in terms of your outreach and, and with regard to its public visibility, the more practical the kind of steps you can be asking from the Israelis towards the Palestinians. For example, I cited the one, one profound need for the Palestinians. They have a huge water problem. There are so many things that could be done in terms of creating regional, meaning regional in the West Bank sense, wastewater treatment centers. doesn't exist now, but it could be something the Israelis could both facilitate and help make happen. There's an acute housing need uh, for the Palestinians. The Israelis could open up legally uh, construction of housing uh, in the 60% of the West Bank known as Area C, where the Palestinians, if they build now, they're building illegally and they run the risk of whatever they build will be demolished. Uh, again, the more visible the step towards the Israelis, the more they can ask in terms of the, the political saliency of the moves that the Israelis make towards the Palestinians. Now, obviously, for this to work, the Palestinians have to be a part of it. The Palestinians themselves have to create this menu of options. People like the three of us can create options for the Palestinians, but unless they're prepared to engage, this is unlikely to materialize. I actually had a conversation this morning uh, with a group of Palestinians that I work with, and we were talking about the, the need to look at the region and realize if they stay where they are, it's not going to stop what's happening in the region. Others will follow what the UAE has done. Maybe they won't do it completely, but they will do it partially. The region is not going to remain static. The Palestinians have a choice. They can look at what the Arabs are doing and say it gives us a lever vis-a-vis -vis the Israelis to get something that's important to us, or they can stand pat and be left behind. So I do see this as an opening for the Palestinians, but the Palestinians also have to recognize it, and it's difficult for them right now. They're divided between Fatah and Hamas, between the West Bank and Gaza. There's a positioning in the West Bank to succeed Abu Mazen. It's hard for them, and it's hard for them to break out of what has been 
their self-perception, their narrative, their story and sense of victimhood and injustice. But there is a time now in particular for Palestinians to begin to look in the mirror and to look at, all right, is the path we're on one that's serving our interests or is there an opening here that we can take advantage of? Do you think they understand that? I can tell you from the conversations I had with two different sets, I will say. I had one group of Palestinians I work actively with, and I did another one uh, a little later this morning. They're wrestling with it. On the one hand, they feel restricted by the political leadership. And I was talking to some people who are within the PA, lamenting where they are. Uh, They feel restricted by that. But it's clear to me there's a discussion that is beginning to at least think about what can we do. Now, is it going to turn around next week? Probably not. They're clearly, I think, also sitting back and waiting for what happens with the election here. But there's absolutely a kind of turmoil that is expressing itself in some debate. And I would even say uh, some pressure on Abu Mazen, which I don't expect him, expect him to accept right now, but some pressure from within to do something differently. I'll add one thought to that, which is that as you talk to younger Palestinians, and I've had a number of opportunities over the months to do that, you hear a couple of different strains. One is a movement away from an idea of two states. Uh, If it's not possible, maybe uh, they want to try to achieve equal rights in one state. To me, that's not a viable solution. It's uh, actually uh, not going to, there won't be a critical mass support and it would not really be workable would not be in our interest as well. It's much more in our interest to keep a two-state solution alive and viable. But one of the other things you hear is this just extraordinary kind of openness uh, to the world. Uh, And uh, there's a great deal of talent, technical talent, uh, talent in finance, talent in uh, in high tech and in in engineering uh, among Palestinians who in some cases are more than ready uh, to look past the taboos that would restrict them from being partners with Israelis, and also seek opportunities uh, elsewhere in the region and elsewhere in the world. And so I believe there actually is a base uh, of opinion in that generation of Palestinians who could be participants in these bridging kinds of activities uh, between Israelis, uh, Emiratis, Bahrainis, Palestinians, maybe with American Mm -hmm. participants as well, uh, and may find that they uh, see opportunity here personal, and but as well as, as for their national cause, uh, by uh, not taking the very rejectionist approach uh, that was the initial reaction uh, of, of, some, of many of their leaders. Can I, I just add, Yusuf, that um, I, I think it will take some time uh, for the Palestinians to make the adjustments that Dennis and Dana are talking about. Their first instinct uh, of uh, fairly sclerotic leadership is to dig in their heels uh, and and, uh, just refuse to budge and and play the victim card, which they've learned to play quite well. But I think that that it's important if this process is to mature of them coming to terms and realising that there could be an opportunity here for uh, the United States and Israel to encourage that, Uh, and for the UAE in particular um, and Bahrain uh, to help in that process. Uh, And by that I mean Donald Trump, for example, um, could at this point open a dialogue 
with Abu Mazen. I think if he were to make clear two things that is essentially already said, which is annexation is off the table because of the commitments made uh, that the UAE secured, and everything in his initiative is negotiable and that it's not going to be an imposed solution on the Palestinians and it's open uh, to negotiate with them. I don't think they're about to walk through that door at the moment, but opening that door in a very clear way could be positive. Second thing relates to Israel, and I, I was a little disappointed that, that Netanyahu didn't show greater generosity of spirit. He, he could have reached out to the Palestinians um, and made it clear that he intends to try to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict too, rather than this kind of message that, that both Trump and Netanyahu seem to want to send, which is, you know, the PLO is now going to be left behind. Um, I don't think that's productive. And, and the Israelis are now in a situation which, frankly, uh, the UAE has established by connecting, by linking the, the normalisation to no annexation. If other Arab states are going to join in the way that Dennis was suggesting, then the Israelis now have to be very sensitive and very careful, not just about annexation, which is off the table, but settlement expansion. If they want the fruits of peace that the Emirates and, and Bahrainis have now made clear are in the offing and that this peace and normalisation can spread to others in the region, then this is not the time to be expanding settlements. And, and I think that Israelis should understand that, Dan may want to comment, quite well, and that Netanyahu, who wants to be the champion of this process, also understands it. And if that's the case, if we actually see that there isn't settlement activity, this too can help to encourage the Palestinians to recognise that there's something in this for them. That, that, that's real and, and that they're not going to be left behind. Dan, can you comment on that? And then I want to take us beyond the Israel-Palestine dimension and into the international reaction to, to September 15th. Well, I agree with Martin that it would uh, obviously demonstrate uh, for Palestinians first that annexation was taken off the table and then there may be other uh, benefits of, of this agreement even before uh, trying to actually um, bring it forward towards uh, a new negotiation or, or anything of that sort. Uh, and there are rumors of such uh, commitments uh, in the Israeli press. They are denied by Prime Minister Netanyahu and his circle. Um, uh, Yusuf, I don't know if there's anything you care to share with us about this, but there are uh, certainly, there's certainly been an observed uh, lessening uh, of activity uh, in uh, many settlements uh, in this period. Uh, the question is, uh, will that be ongoing? The question is, uh, what does the Trump administration expect and, and what, what commitments has it assured? Uh, uh, what commitments has it secured uh, from Israel? But indeed, uh, that and, uh, as Martin said, opening the door to a discussion with the Palestinians about uh, the uh, features of the Trump initiative, which uh, no Palestinian leader will ever be able to accept as it is, uh, might again show that there is uh, there, there's an open, there is a door open uh, worth exploring. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that, and I want to take us into the international reaction. I, I think I don't think I'm very confident 
that annexation is off the table for a significant period of time. That was the arrangement we have with the United States. Uh, it's for a significant period of time. We agreed to keep that period of time private between us. But I also think that we kicked the can down the road far enough that Israelis are going to see tremendous benefits for Israel. They're going to see the benefits of these agreements in reality very, very soon. And I think annexation will be something most people do not address in the future. I, I think we're going to create so much goodwill and so much positive momentum. Uh, I saw something in Israel that I rarely see, which is 80% of Israel, uh, a week after the announcement, supported this deal over annexation. 80%. All three of you know that 80% of Israel doesn't agree on anything together. So that, that tells me that this is something they want more than annexation. That's why I'm not worried. But Martin, I want to go to you. We, we talked about the Israeli-Palestinian dynamics and politics. We watched very carefully the international reaction. And from the vast majority of European capitals, from the vast majority of Arab capitals, uh, both sides of the aisle here in Washington were extremely supportive. Uh, I saw Vice President Biden's statement, even better than I expected. We got very consistent support from everywhere we looked, with the exception of two countries, Iran, Turkey, of course, the Palestinians, and Qatar and their media networks. So how does it look from an international perspective? How did this play out in Australia or somewhere else that is not as intimately involved in the Middle East? I, th I think it was uh, generally welcomed, uh, especially because it comes hard on the heels of, of uh, a very negative reaction to the idea of annexation and a real concern. Uh, internationally, particularly in Europe, uh, that that uh, Israel was about to take a step that would make, but that would render the two-state solution impossible to achieve. Um, and so, it's in that context that I think you saw a great kind of relief at what the UAE uh, succeeded in doing. And then, uh, you know, it's been a really long, dry spell uh, uh, where there's been really no hope of any uh, breakthrough to, uh, to peace uh, in the region for such a long time. And there are countries in Europe and Japan, uh, to a lesser extent Australia, who, who have a stake in seeing the region uh, move forward towards peace. And, and so I think that, that in general it was um, greatly welcomed. Dennis, same question. Look, I, I agree with Martin. One of the things that has not been appreciated enough is what you succeeded in stopping. By stopping annexation, and if it wasn't for what the UAE was offering, we would have seen annexation. Uh, so our podcast today would have been a podcast about how much was going to be annexed, not about normalizing the relationship. Well, and the point Martin made, which is right, is that that would have spelled the end of a two-state possibility. Uh, and the reality here is that there does need to be some greater focus on this as a way of reminding many who have an instinct to be critical because the Palestinians aren't happy. There are those, certainly there are certain groups, especially in Europe, who take kind of the standard as being, well, what's the Palestinian reaction? And here was an action that in the end 
serve Palestinian interests because it prevented annexation. Uh, the value of reminding people of this, and Sheikh Abdullah did it, by the way, in his speech at the White House, the value of reminding people of this is, again, it tends to elevate this issue of a lot is possible for Israel. And you used your terminology is exactly the way to think about it. Here are all these positive benefits that Israelis really hunger for. Dan put his finger on it earlier. Because Israel grew up in an atmosphere, and Israelis grew up in an atmosphere of rejection and denial, and even when they got cold peace, the focus was less on the fact, well, it's cold because the Palestinians are in power, but the focus was there's still a fundamental hesitancy to accept our right to be here. They accept the reality of our being here, but they don't accept the right of our being here. What you've done in this agreement is send the message, we accept you have a right to be here. That threshold is a huge psychological threshold to cross. And showing what you can do and what other Arabs can do towards Israel is related to what the Israelis are prepared to do towards Palestinians is something that actually gives us all a reason to be hopeful that much more can be done. Yeah, Dennis is really right about uh, the importance of the uh, UAE's initiative to stop annexation. And I've written this, Yusuf, so I'm not going to say this to you know, just pay you the compliment, uh, but it was actually your op-ed uh, in uh, an Israeli newspaper, Yidiot Achronot, in Hebrew, on a Friday morning, the day that the, uh, the, the main newspaper uh, circulation takes place, uh, which presented to the Israelis just a couple of weeks before the window opened when they could have begun the annexation, uh, that they had a choice. They had an opportunity uh, for taking a real step forward in the relations with, with, the, United, with the UAE, including normalization. Uh, but it was one or the other. Normalization and annexation couldn't coexist. It had a profound impact and really shaped the debate in Israel uh, after that. And as you've, you know, uh, I think indicated, after that, uh, the discussions got very serious with the White House and then with the Israelis. But it was really as late as mid-June when, uh, as I said, we were really on the road to annexation. But in terms of international reaction, what, what I took great note of, of course, was the uh, reaction of other Arab states. Uh, some Arab states, it's clear, are considering following uh, the UAE and Bahrain. Uh, we've heard about Oman, and we've heard about Sudan, and we've heard about some others that are considering it. Lots of people are asking the questions about uh, the Saudis, although that probably will take longer. But it's clear that others are giving this very serious thought, may get on the same road, uh, may take them a little longer. But uh, when uh, the Arab League was asked to speak to it, uh, it did not condemn it. It did not uh, kick the UAE and Bahrain out. Uh, it spoke about it in very, very moderate tones. And that says a lot about uh, what the uh, what changes are happening in the region that this decision captured uh, and will probably propel forward. Okay. Thank you, gentlemen. It's lovely to hear such wise and experienced perspectives. And, and before I close with just a, a personal story, I want to give each one of you a chance to offer his final thoughts. Martin, let's start with you. Well, you know, Yusuf, we talked about the international reaction, but we didn't really talk about the, the regional context. And you mentioned Iran and Turkey. I, I, for me, uh, looking at this uh, Abraham Accords in, in strategic context, uh, something very significant has happened here too uh, that I think is very important for uh, the UAE and Israel and Bahrain and other 
as states in the region that care about stability and feel threatened by Iran's hegemonic ambitions. Uh, but it's also very important for the United States because we are retrenching from the region. That doesn't mean we're pulling out altogether, but we are shifting our focus to uh, a, a rising concern about China. And uh, we need reliable regional allies working together to fill the vacuum that we are creating um, by that process of retrenchment from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from Syria, and so on. And um, the fact that the two most capable uh, military uh, states and powers in the region, that is the UAE and Israel, are now openly able to work together will strengthen uh, the deterrence against uh, uh, Iran and will, I think, provide a, a much firmer uh, pillar of stability that with US support, can uh, do much to, to uh, stabilise the region and, and enhance the uh, capabilities of the, those states in the region who, who share the same vision of a more peaceful, more prosperous and, and more stable uh, environment. So I think that that's, uh, it was, I, I believe, an important stimulus to this breakthrough, but I think it will have an ongoing impact that, that is going to be very important uh, for the region and for the United States. Thank you, Mark. Dan, go for it. There's no question that this is uh, a hinge. Uh, I think it was described as that uh, on the White House lawn. Uh, and the old framework of an Arab-Israeli conflict with uh, no ability uh, for Israelis and Arabs to engage one another or to do so openly, uh, that's never going to be returning. Uh, there are going to be other Arab states that are going to follow. Uh, hopefully, even Egypt and Jordan will find ways of changing the nature of their uh, peace uh, relations, peaceful relations with Israel to be more in the spirit of the open, people-to-people, -people, uh, uh, normal, fully normalized relationship that you have indicated that the UAE intends to build with Israel. And then the remaining question, but I think all of us agree, uh, is that there exists a possibility to uh, generate momentum on uh, bringing Israelis and Palestinians back onto the road to a two-state solution. It won't be easy, but there's no reason to treat this as, and some Palestinians have made this mistake, and even some Israelis have made this mistake. There's no reason to treat this uh, as something that takes us off that road. Uh, in fact, it can be a source uh, of new momentum in that direction. I hope it will be. Thanks, Dan. Dennis? Uh, look, I'll just, I'll briefly echo what both uh, Martin and Dan have said, and just add the following. Uh, one, it's a message to all of us. I often tell my students this, don't fall in love with your own assumptions. What we've seen here is a, a long, deeply held assumption that nothing was possible with between Arabs and Israelis until the Palestinian issue was completely resolved, that's clearly not the case. We knew it that below the radar screen that things could be done. This says, you know what, you can do it in the open, point one. Point two, it does create an opportunity. It does create a real possibility for American diplomacy to now broker among the, the Arabs, Israelis, and Palestinians and build on that. I said before, the Arabs can't deliver the Palestinians, 
but here they can be much more of a bridge to a very different kind of future. Uh, I'm, I'm very hopeful that uh, there are all sorts of new possibilities because of this breakthrough. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, Martin, Dan. Um, to all our listeners, we just had a conversation with the dream team of U.S., Israel, and Middle East policy in the United States. These are three of the most seasoned veterans on these issues. So you've got some of the best views, experiences, and points of view you can have on this subject. And I'll close with two personal stories that touch on the two sides of the Oteba generation. September 15th is a day I'm going to remember for the rest of my life, not just for the day of the signing, but also because September 15th happens to be my son's birthday. And I couldn't think of any better way to reflect on how important that day is in my life now for those two reasons. On September 14th at night, when I was uh, reading to Omar before he goes to bed, I said, Omar, I'm really excited. Tomorrow's your birthday, but we're also signing this really big peace agreement tomorrow. And I had been excited for a few days, so I've been telling him all about it. He looked at me, he goes, Dad, I think you're more excited about the peace agreement than my birthday. And I said, no, I'm not more excited. I'm just really excited that they're both happening on the same day. That's really cool. And one day when you're older, I think you'll understand how actually cool it is. And then this morning I spoke to my father and my father said to me, he said, you know, there's the UAE before the September 15th, but UAE after September 15th is going to be very different. And two perspectives, one from a 10 year old and one from a 76 year old, uh, that tells you how important that day is going to be for all of us going forward. And for all the things that you've mentioned, for all the reasons that you've mentioned, for the new way of thinking that has been introduced for the, the way young people in our part of the world are going to look towards the future, for the young people who are going to look at working, investing, trading, studying, researching with Israelis, and it's not taboo anymore. That's probably the most significant breakthrough of what we just did. Breaking that ideological barrier and that stereotypical barrier that we have in place that I think at least as far as the UAE is concerned is no longer gonna be there. People are going to look at Israel and say, yeah, we can work with them. We can disagree with them on certain issues, but we can certainly work with them. And I think this is, this is why this moment is so special. And I am very optimistic and I'm very confident that this is going to be a win-win and a mutually beneficial relationship for a very, very long time. So to all of you who I've talked to prior to the agreement, after the agreement, consulted with. Uh, thank you. Thank you for helping making this possible. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you. Thank you. This has been PodBridge, produced with the support of the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates in the U.S. For more information about the PodBridge project, follow us on Twitter at UAEUSA United or visit our website at podbridge.com. 